We've come to a time now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to 2 Samuel 11? If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 221. And when you found that passage, would you stand together with me? And I'll read this for us. It says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, well, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife David, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him, how was Joab and how the soldiers were doing, how the war was going? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. This is a Hebrew euphemism for go home and go to bed with your wife. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told, Uriah did not go home. He asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now, Joab is uh, David's general. He's a faithful commander. He does what David says, although he alters the plan a bit because David's plan is stupid and it's really obvious. So he's like, you know, we're going to do a little bit, conceal what you're trying to do here a little bit better. And when Uriah is killed in battle, he sends words to David that this is what's happened, kind of sandwiched within uh, some other information. Verse 22, the messenger set out and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the, the man overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy this. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After that time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
Let me pray for us and just ask God's blessing over this time in his word. Spirit of God, we come today to this uh, really awful passage, uh, this really awful moment in David's life, and just ask, as we look at this, <coughs> would, you, um, would you be present with us? Would you open our eyes to understand exactly what it is you want us to learn and grow as we investigate this passage today? We believe that this word was inspired by your spirit to be written. So this is a living word, not just some ancient document that tells us stories. It's a living word, and you have something to accomplish in each one of us today. You say when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Well, God accomplished that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, long before books like uh, Hunger Games or Divergent, a writer named William Golding wrote a classic novel in 1954, Lord of the Flies. How many of you read this book or had to, were forced to read this? <laughs> you know, it's this story about uh, these uh, British private school boys. There's a plane crash somewhere in the South Pacific, and they have to survive on this deserted island with no adults until they can be rescued. But if you've read that story before, you know that much more than just a darkly captivating Gilligan's Island gone wrong kind of story, this Golding's novel is also this profound uh, psychological, philosophical exploration of the human heart. Uh, what, what he saw as the capacity within all of us to carry out unthinkable atrocities freed from the social constraints that the majority of our societies are governed by. And living in a post Genesis 3 world, most of you here will probably already know the Bible doesn't take a radically different view from Golding's, actually. Although it would say that it's God's common grace, actually. That's the thing that ultimately restrains the unbridled expression of the sin present in all of our hearts, uh, and not simply just civilized societal norms. But if you listen carefully to the average person today, what you'll hear is a view of humanity that's it's very different than uh, Golding's or the Bible's. It's a view that sees the vast majority of all of us here in the world, every human being, uh, as you know, flawed, imperfect, yes, but basically good. You know, we're basically good people, uh, with the exception, you know, there's a few bad apples out there, yes. We've got our Hitlers, Osama bin Laden, there's guys like that, bad apples, you know, that are clearly evil for any number of reasons. And because we... We get, we get caught up in that worldview ourselves. When you hear about bad apples doing bad things, most of us think, well, of course. Those are the kind of things that bad apples do. But while most of us would acknowledge the reality that there are those who carry out unspeakable actions, almost no one believes that they themselves are capable of carrying out such unspeakable actions themselves. No, 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 no. Those are things bad apples do. We're continuing in this series this morning after God's own heart, looking at the life of David as we have for us here in the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. And honestly, if there was a part of David's story that, that I could just skip past, I would just not have to look at, not have to preach on, this is it. Here we are. This is the passage because... This, this, this just messes up everything. 
messes up everything. Why? Well, for a lot of reasons, but one of the big ones being um, when, when a toddler is clumsy and carrying a bowl of Cheerios and he spills it on the carpet, that's not odd to anyone. We're like, yeah, of course. Uh, when a convicted felon is, gets out of jail but then reoffends and ends up going back to jail, it's tragic, but nobody finds that hard to understand. But if you've been here for even one week in this series, any other than today, everyone finds it almost impossible to process when someone like King David... The, the, the shepherd boy champion over Goliath, writer of the majority of the book of Psalms, the one the Bible describes itself as a man after God's own heart. When he starts behaving like a bad apple, we, we, we don't even know what to do with that. And it takes all of our nicely organized apple carts where we've got here, there's the good apples here and a few bad apples here, and it just flips the whole thing right upside down, and it's like, no, 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 we're not going to let you do that. But if you can get beyond the, the shock and, and horror of David's undeniable abuse of power here that sees a, a woman, a marriage, uh, the life of one of his best soldiers, and, and really even David's own integrity, all left in shambles, if we can get beyond that, I think one of the most troubling things of all about this passage for us as we read this story today is the way I think it really confirms the Bible's and Golding's view of the human heart. That... that it reveals what even the best, most unlikely among us, still have the capacity within us to do. And that's frightening to think about. And yet, listen, I believe if we can somehow force ourselves just to find the strength to look at this reality in the face and acknowledge that this side of heaven, the capacity for unspeakable evil remains within me, it remains within you, it remains within all of us, I think... That gives us the best chance possible of avoiding such a devastating failure as David's in our lives today. Which I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that that's a life goal that, by God's grace, we all want to accomplish, yes? Yeah. And if you're wired at all like me, once you've acknowledged that, you, that, that capacity for evil is there, it's in David, it's in me, you, you want to closely examine David's story now. You want to be like, hey, what, what happened here? We want to do the post-mortem on this massive failure that David had, follow the steps of the devastating loss that he went through, so that we might be able to find the pattern, like recognize, is there a progression of things that I can watch for so that I don't have that same kind of failing in my own life? And in order to help us do that, I want to look at our passage together this morning with just a single focus. I know Dave Gibbon is always happy when we have a one-point sermon. Single focus, all I want to look at together with you is the anatomy of a fall. The anatomy of a fall. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to that passage, 2 Samuel 11. Follow along with me as we look at this truly ruinous day in the life of the man after God's own heart. Okay, so let's walk through this and look at the anatomy of a fall. The anatomy of a fall. Now I know... I'm probably asking a lot of you who've even read uh, Lord of the Flies to now try and remember anything about the book that you probably haven't read since high school. But if you can at least remember the characters of that book, uh, uh, there's two distinct leaders that kind of emerge from the other boys uh, that are stranded on this island, Ralph and Jack. Is it starting to come to you now? Okay, so Ralph, 
Ralph is the, the rational, kind of benevolent leader who uses his power to, to serve and provide for those that he's leading. Jack, on the other hand, he's kind of more the impulsive, restless leader who uses his power to control and dominate everyone else on the island. And what's interesting is that if you apply those two uses of power in Golding's novel like a template over the life of David, you see some very interesting parallels. Because here's the thing. You, th this story, I've always believed in the past that what we had in this passage here was ultimately just a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale about lust and adultery and the devastating effects of, of that and David trying to cover it up. And, and while, yes, the, the Bible is absolutely warning us against being entrapped by those things, what I've come to see is that this story has much less to do with the allure of a woman and way more to do with the allure of power and entitlement. The allure of, of power and entitlement that then leads David to believe he can indulge in those sinful passions with immunity. Just simply just to say, aside from that incident in 1 Samuel 25 with David and Nabal, David up until this point has largely been using his power like Ralph. And what we see now in 2 Samuel 11 is now David's beginning to use his power much more like Jack. So all I want to do is just test this hypothesis that, that this really is teaching us about the dangers and allure of power and entitlement. So I just want to walk through the narrative, lay, lay out the anatomy of this downfall, and see if you don't come to the same conclusion. And I think we see evidence of this right from the very first verse of our passage. Look there with me. In the verse 1, the narrator tells us this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now what stands out for me there are at least two things. The first is quite obvious from the text, right? Uh, it says that it's a favorable time for kings and armies to go out to war. That is, it's spring when the, the winter rains have passed and the ground is, is set up for things like battles. And they're far enough away from the fall harvest that they have time for things like battles and doing this kind of stuff. So it's, it's this favorable time. And here we see David sending out Joab, sending out the armies of Israel while he remains on a staycation in Jerusalem. Now, as most commentators point out, it, it's not... It's not as though David was required to go out. He didn't have to go out with every battle. He didn't. But what seems to fill this meaningless detail with a whole lot of meaning, and which is actually the second thing that stands out about this passage, is this. It's a little bit more subtle. It's when we remember the kind of man that we've seen David to be throughout this passage. Every time we've looked at David, who is David? David is a warrior, right? That's who this guy is. I mean, he's been fighting bears and lions from the time he was a young boy out in the field, and then now battles and warfare against giants and nations, that's been his consistent pattern, pattern ever since. So, so this is intended to stand out as a very significant detail, very significant change when we're told it's the time when kings go out to war, but then noting that King David, the warrior, stayed home. It's like, what's going on? I mean, this would be the same as like a sportscaster telling us, hey, it's the springtime. Masters, tournaments getting underway. But Tiger Woods was at home, binging on Netflix and Cool Ranch Doritos. We would be like, but David's a golfer. He should, why is he there and not here? It's the same contrast meant to 
stand out to us. It's highlighted. And I think, additionally, the fact that the narrator gives us no reason as to why David stayed home is clearly meant to imply that there wasn't one, actually. But along with just being something interesting to note, I think what the narrator is revealing through David's inaction here is an apparent connection between David's battling against physical armies and enemies and David's battling against spiritual ones. He's meaning to draw a connection here about what's going on underneath the surface. When the allure of entitlement tells David, listen, you've been fighting a lot. You've had to do a lot of battles. You've, you've, You've had a hard time. You deserve a break. Just take it easy for a while. Let the other guys handle it. You just just relax. It's your time to take a break, David. There seems to be a direct connection between that relaxing there and the relaxing in his spiritual life as well. And in fact, this is something that's key to this whole argument, I think, about the allure of power and entitlement actually being the focus of our passage. And it's this action, really inaction, of David sending out. You see this all through the passage again and again. David, skip the dishes, sending out, sending out, sending out, over and over again. This, in this case here, sending out Joab and the armies of Israel to fight for him. That's the first one we see. But it's what we see over and over and over again in this passage. And for me, it's one of the clearest indicators that David, he's become intoxicated with the allure of power. He's become entitled in his position as king, and the result is that he also now lets down his guard as it relates to battling sin and his orienting of his heart towards God. And if we could just step outside of the story for a minute and just pause here for a minute, I think it's somewhat important to remind us that that's exactly the way this works out in our lives as well. It happens the exact same way. When when you are consistent, habitual in your fighting of sin as well as the actions that keep your heart focused and oriented on God, you don't follow God perfectly, no, but you're much more aware of the orientation of your heart when you do that, and you tend to correct wanderings much more quickly. It's when you become inconsistent, when you become laid back and chill as it comes to fighting sin in your pursuit of God, that you begin to experience this growing sense of entitlement, and you start to tolerate stuff that normally you never would have allowed to hang around long enough to take root. All of a sudden, you're like, yeah, I should get to that, but, and you just leave it there. Which means, listen, as we continue to, to go through this anatomy of David's downfall, this is one of the first warning signs. This is one of the first warning signs that you ought to both look for and ask other people to point out, to, to point out in your life as well. Because we need it. Where, where do you find yourself experiencing this sense of entitlement? Convincing yourself, you you deserve this extravagance. You deserve this indulgence, you know, this time. Allowing things to remain that you would normally forbid yourself from. Where do you see that in your life? Do you allow other people to point that out in your life when they see it? And listen, this could be anything from like ordering that third glass of wine at dinner to to inviting a a friendly, playful flirtations from a coworker. It could be any one of those things and everything in between, that's not necessarily sin yet, but is absolutely the fertile ground in which the seeds of sin quickly take root and thrive. I think John Owen is one of the guys who said it best. He said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There's there's no take a break from fighting against sin in your life. There is no break. The break comes when we enter into our rest. 
The next place you see this entitled sending from David is in the very next verses, 2 and 3. David wakes up from his afternoon nap. He decides to go out for an evening walk on the roof, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now, verse 4 tells us this bath she's taking. It's a ritual bath uh, prescribed that women would complete after their cycle of menstruation. They would purify themselves so they could go to the temple worship. But when you look at verse 2, you see the way that it's worded. The focus of David is entirely on her external beauty, her external form. It's just he just saw her. She was beautiful. To, to put it crassly, David sees a shiny new toy and he wants one for his collection. And in verse 3, what we're going to see now is David's pattern here. He just sends out someone to find out about her. Go find out about who that is. Revealing just how quickly the seeds of David's lust have already grown in the fertile soil of his entitlement. But what's most telling about the fact that David is now using his power to take instead of to protect is that although the messenger comes back, look, with the clearest of reports. I mean, this is not unlike Abigail when she intercepted David on the way to destroy Nabal and all the men there. She, this guy comes in with a super clear, unambiguous report. Oh, she's, she's married. She's the wife of someone else. She's actually the wife of Uriah, one of your mighty men who actually went around protecting your life all those years when you were running around in the desert from Saul. That guy, that's his wife. Although it could not be more clear, now King David, well, he will not be restrained anymore. He will not be redirected. And as though he hadn't heard a single word from the report that this guy brings him, beginning of verse 4, it just says, then David sent messengers to get her. If you look at the rest of verse 4, you see this just kind of bare, emotionless, almost just nondescript listing of facts. It just lists verbs, really. David got her. She came to him. He slept with her. She went back. Which I think is intended to plainly reveal, rather than anything like love or romance, this is nothing more than a king giving free reign to his lust and taking unfair advantage of one of his subjects simply because he can. Can we just stop and marvel for a moment? Can you even believe this is the same David that we've been looking at all these weeks? This is like a a completely different person. You want to grab him by the shoulders and be like, what are you doing? And it's here that I just want to pause again in our investigation and just point out, listen, the great gift, the gift that these messengers like Abigail and this guy who brings the report about Bathsheba are to us. They really are gifts to us. And I know in the moment, yeah, yeah, their words are totally frustratingly annoying, agonizingly hard to receive, particularly if that person calling you out is a total hypocrite and they've done the same thing themselves. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that they're wrong. Can you just imagine, just think about the devastation David could have avoided if he would have just acknowledged his entitlement, restrained his lust before he sent for Bathsheba and slept with her. He could have avoided so much damage if he just listened to this report that was given to him. And and maybe the choice in front of you today isn't the same as David's was. Maybe it's exactly the same. But as we continue examining the the anatomy of David's fall, another takeaway for us here that could save you from experiencing the same downfall as him is listen be open to this 
be open to this when people come to you. In fact, seek it out. Seek out people who would say, hey, listen, if you see this in my life, would you, would you show it to me? I know I might fight back, but I need to hear this from you. If you see me doing this, these are gifts that God sends to us, intended to redirect you away from the very actions that your entitlement is telling you you deserve. You need somebody from outside who's going to be like, don't walk down that road. As a side note, I think it's important to say this. Sometimes people ask the question when we come to this story, what about Bathsheba? And what, what responsibility does she have here? And it's true. Whenever a case of adultery is taking place, we always say, hey, it takes two to tango. And that's, that's right. But I think if you consider the historical context here that we're talking about, the place of women in this historical context, not to mention the vast power differential between David and Bathsheba, I think you'd agree that Bathsheba likely had very little choice in this transaction. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing to refuse a king. And sometimes, even your integrity can get you killed. Which, amazingly, is exactly what we see in the next verses. As David now sends for Uriah, the moment that he discovers that Bathsheba is pregnant and he can't act with immunity that he imagined he could. And as you read the interchange between David and Uriah in verses 6 to 13, you can see the king becoming increasingly savage, increasingly clumsy, much like the boys on the, stranded on that island in Golding's novel, as he resorts now to everything from locker room goading to trying to get Uriah drunk. He's doing everything he can to just try and get him to go home and cover up his mess, cover up his tracks, and sleep with his wife. And beyond that, even just... As we've been going through this story, have you noticed how many loose ends David is leaving? He's sending out all of his servants and he's saying, oh, yeah, go check out that. Oh, can you bring her to me? He's sending out all these messengers as loose ends all over the place. Clearly, David has never seen an episode of Downton Abbey because he would know, hey, these servant guys, yeah, they talk to each other when they're not around me. He would have known that. Clearly, th this is not the, the wise, cunning David that we've seen up until now. But just look now at how the, uh, Uriah responds to David's attempts. Verse 9, second half of verse th 13, rather than submitting to the king's power, he sleeps at the palace gate with the rest of the men rather than go home and sleep with his wife, which as both David and Uriah knew, that's precisely what was expected of a soldier who was on duty in the armies of Israel. But if you look at Uriah's only recorded dialogue in verse 11, after the first night that he doesn't go home, it's just loaded with suggestiveness. As David inquires, why, why didn't you go home? Look at what Uriah says to him. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go home to my house, eat and drink, and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And knowing that Uriah has just spent the night with all of David's palace servants, hearing a response like that, David has to be, ooh, okay. He has to be asking himself the same question that we're all wondering as well now. Does Uriah know? Does Uriah know everything that's gone on in his absence? The Bible doesn't answer that question for us. And the reality is that even if he does know what David has done, he's only slightly more able than his wife to do anything about it. 
But let's just assume for a second that he does know. Let's assume. Consider then this description of Uriah. Unjustly treated by a power-hungry king, yet faithful to God, faithful to his king, and faithful to his fellow soldiers. Does that sound familiar at all to you? It sounds a lot like the David that we've known back in the days when he was hiding in caves and running for his life. And yet, if that's true, can you even imagine what a blinding example of his former self Uriah is now to David? Uriah, whose name means the Lord is my life. David must be seeing a blinding example of his former self in this man. And he's, he's, it's so much, so blinding that when he can't coerce Uriah to go along with his plans, he decides to put out his light entirely in verse 15. Sending off Uriah's own death warrant with him in a sealed letter to deliver back to Joab when he gets to the battlefront. And when faithful Joab carries out David's murderous plan and news is brought back to David of Uriah's death, where this all culminates is in one last awful sending in verse 25 where David now convinced that he's escaped he's made it through this ruin as he's exercised his necessary kingly power in order to you know preserve the welfare of the state he pronounces really this this sickening absolving of guilt in in order to encourage Joab see what he says there Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. Sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. In the Hebrew, that, that first part of the verse literally reads, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. And yet as the chapter closes out now with David fully blinded to the effects of his abuse of power, Reckless entitlement as the king, what we see is that God had a very different perspective on what David had done. Where David instructs others not to see this thing he's done as evil, the literal Hebrew text again says plainly, but the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And all I want to point out here as it relates to our examination of the anatomy of David's downfall is to First of all, just to point out, this is the ultimate end that comes when we ignore the warning signs. Just where you become completely blind to your sin, calloused to its effects on anybody else. When you ignore the warning signs enough, this is the eventual end. Second thing is to say is that sometimes, as we see in the case of Uriah, doing the right thing, choosing the right path, is not going to end with a trophy. Sometimes resisting entitlement, remaining vigilant in your integrity, is going to cost you your life. And yet the hope and the encouragement of verse 27 is that the sovereign God over all, he sees. He sees the abuses of power committed against you. He sees the integrity of your heart. Listen, even if nobody else does, he sees it. Which should serve, which should serve as a great encouragement as well as a great warning to us. Because on the one hand, it's a reminder, yes, God sees. He will bless when you strive with everything in you to maintain the orientation of your heart towards him. Remember, that's what it means to be after God's own heart. He sees that and he will reward it. But it also is a reminder that God sees. Right? He sees even the things you think nobody else can see. And he will never allow you to act with the kind of immunity that David's entitlement led him to believe he had. He's not going to let you do it. 
So do you see it now? Do you see why I believe this passage really is ultimately about the allure of power and entitlement? With, with each successive sending, what we see with greater and greater clarity is a David who is blinded by his sense of entitlement that leads him to abuse his position and power in ways that bring about all kinds of devastation. But as I tried to highlight when we began, regardless, it doesn't matter really what's motivating his actions. The actions themselves still seem in complete opposition to everything we've seen in the life of David up until now. Certainly to the Bible's description of him as a man after God's own heart. We're just like, really? This, this is your example of that, God? But when we're finally able to face the reality that David, this David we've been looking at up until now, is the very same David we see in 2 Samuel 12. And we can kind of just feel the weight of that and be like, wow, that, these are the same guy. This is the same guy. Much like Jesus' disciples, when they were told it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, we want to ask like them, well, then who can be saved? I mean, if even someone like David can fail like this, what hope is there for any of us? Which I think is a particularly relevant question. If, like David, you've also missed or ignored the warning signs leading up to it and have had a downfall like David in your own life. If that's your story, you know all too well the capacity of the human heart. You, you know what you're capable of. And your question is now, never mind how do I avoid such a downfall, what do I do once I've had one? In his commentary on our passage, pastor and author Eugene Peterson calls this part of David's story, quote, a story repeated with variations over and over and over again. Sin stories after a while tend to sound pretty much alike. Virtually all sins changing on the theme of wanting to be gods ourselves, taking charge of our own lives, asserting control over others. And since there's only a finite number of ways to do this, no one reading this story ought to have any difficulty finding him or herself in it. Whether you've already had a major falling like David in your life or you're just coming to recognize your capacity to have such a devastating fall, the answer in either case is still the grace of our God. We sang about it over and over again this morning. Did you hear it? The grace of our God, that we have a God of grace and mercy. That's the answer in both cases. A God who, Hebrew, sorry, Philippians 2 tells us, had all the power and authority and who surrendered that power, gave it up in order to cover all of these major failings in our life. That's, that's the, the, the truth of the gospel for us. Whether you have fallen like this or are hoping not to, it's the grace of our God who gives up power in order to cover for our failings. Sadly, we're not going to have time today to dig into the grace of God available for those who've already had a downfall like David's until we get to chapter 12, which given Easter and Fellowship Sunday, that's going to be two weeks away actually. But for those who are just hoping to avoid such a devastating downfall in their life and, and are ready to acknowledge, okay, I have the capacity within myself to do this, which is a vital first step. You have to agree that you are capable of this. What we see here, we see what the grace of God looks like from our passage in at least two ways. And I'll close with this. If we're hoping to avoid such a downfall like this in our own lives, the grace of this passage, first of all, 
is that what we have revealed for us in David's life is that the immunity that David imagined he had in these actions against other people and circumstances, it was an illusion. That's what's being revealed, first of all. It's an illusion. I mean, if you look at verse 5 of our passage back there, you notice how quickly a simple sending of her own from Bathsheba to David totally nullifies his power. David thinks he's in the driver's seat. I'm in control here. Or so he thinks, one simple, I'm pregnant from Bathsheba, and now the strong established king is on the run again. So it was totally an illusion. He thought I could do whatever I want now. God is like, no, you can't. And as, as humbling, as provoking, as insulting as it might sound and feel to hear it, the grace of God to you here today is to free you from that illusion yourself. To free you from the idea before you seek to exert power and control over others only to find like David, you can't actually act with the immunity that David thought he had. God's not going to let you do it. That's the first grace offered to us here in this passage. Second grace is, is in giving us these warning signs. That, that was the purpose, right, of why we were going through this, to see, okay, what are the warning signs? What should I be watching for? The grace here is to give us these warning signs that we've picked up on as we've gone through this post-mortem of David's tragic downfall. There was this sense of entitlement, relaxing in our battling of sin, relaxing in our pursuit of God, ignoring accountability from others. These are the warning signs that are plainly present for us here. They were all through David's life, and he ignored them. He didn't address them, even though they could have spared him devastation that he caused in his own life as well as in the lives of so many others. But here's the reality. None of, this, none of this guarantees any of us a life of sinless perfection. It doesn't. But again, as we've said, that's not what being a man or woman after God's own heart means. But if you can acknowledge that you have this same terrible capacity as David within yourself, then you see, okay, I, I can... I could do this. You, you'll be much more vigilant now to watch for these warning signs and to watch for the evidence in others, to, to, to do what the body of Christ is supposed to do, what we say in our covenant we want to do. We want to be those who help each other, to point each other back towards God when we wander. Why? Because just like we sing in that hymn, all of us, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Why? So that by God's grace we might avoid the devastating lessons that David, the man after God's own heart, had to learn the hard way. 